1: over the legal driving limit when a coroner performed an inquest into her death. Another seven would be the number of months that transpired after the start of that initial inquest before a bombshell dropped. A bombshell so unbelievable that it would call the entire death investigation and autopsy into question. One would be the number on the UK charts that Back to Black shot up to immediately after her death. And four, would be the number of years after her death that a suit at her record label would disclose the ultimate fate of the third definitive Amy Winehouse album, all totaling 27. On this, our last episode of season four, tabloids, inquests, bombshells, and Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The phone rang out at Scotland Yard. The call wasn't unexpected. The detectives knew it would come eventually. They just expected it to come closer to midnight, maybe one or two in the morning, not around four in the afternoon. Such a bizarre time for distress. But hell, life was unexpected like that. Just when you've been lulled into complacency and boredom, when you begin to think that the inevitable call isn't as inevitable as you once thought, boom. The phone rings, and there it is. The hunch you carried all along is confirmed by a breathless voice on the other end of the line. Report of an unresponsive adult female inside the residence at 30 Camden Square. The address was well known. Detectives braced themselves for what they were going to find inside. They imagined the worst, a body that had rejected the hard stuff for the final time, a body crippled by years of abuse, a withered shell of its former self, 27 going on 72. They had stepped inside an Amy Winehouse residence before. Perhaps not this latest address, to be absolutely clear, this posh pad in an even posher neighborhood, but at the very least, they figured they'd be wading through a floor cluttered with old bags of crisps, balled up pieces of foil, empty beer bottles, half-smoked cigarettes, and makeshift ashtrays. Probably a pair of panties or two, crumpled up receipts, maybe a half-eaten white bread and banana sandwich on the counter. The flotsam and jetsam of a high life lived far lower than one would expect. Again, with the expectations. Look, it didn't take a badge from Scotland Yard to understand that Amy Winehouse was a known commodity. Rebel. To the bone. Party girl. Till last call. Anti-authority. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. She was your basic codependent alcoholic junkie. She probably thought she was invincible. Still, the minds of the detectives raced as they approached Camden Square. It was 3.54 PM, Saturday, July 23rd, 2011. The press had been tipped off, as was always the case, and there was already a crowd gathering outside. Inside, they found Amy's body as described on her bed, but the scene wasn't chaos, no needles, no crack pipes, no drug paraphernalia of any kind. Amy was fully clothed, and the laptop she had been watching the night before sat next to her. Two empty vodka bottles were on the floor. As someone from Metro Police stepped inside the bedroom to say that the drug overdose rumors were already hitting the wires. Fuck. The press was jumping the gun, tired of waiting for a statement from Scotland Yard, continuing to chart the fastest path to profits, the path that steered clear of the truth in pursuit of a good story. First things first, They needed someone outside, someone from Metro, issue a statement, get the papers under control, talk down the drug rumors without fully dismissing them. Next, they needed to contact Amy's family immediately. They found Amy's father, Mitch Winehouse, not in London, but all the way across the pond, New York City. Mitch had only recently pumped the brakes on his career as a cab driver in order to pursue his dream to be a jazz singer in his own right. He was the father of one of the most famous singers on the planet, after all, and he found that that particular piece of information opened more doors than not. And so, it was by sheer coincidence that Mitch was in the Big Apple to play a show at the famed Blue Note Jazz Club on the very day that his daughter was found dead in her Camden Square home. He immediately cancelled the gig and frantically searched for the next flight back to London. Before we could get back to London, however... Amy's street had become a makeshift shrine. Flowers, candles, pictures, and letters were clustered around the base of tree trunks. Fans cried in the middle of the street. Strangers hugged strangers, some took pictures, and the paparazzi took pictures of other people taking pictures. And then the tabloids ran their stories. Amy lay dead for six hours was the bold black text that swallowed the entirety of The Sun's front page. Did Amy kill herself over lover The Daily Mirror pondered out loud on its sensational cover apropos of nothing. Other publications stoked the fire under the drug overdose theory, the one that the police couldn't control and that London fixer, Tony Azapardi, could seemingly corroborate when he came forward with his wild tale about Amy's supposed late-night drug run. The Sunday People's Edition, for one, was buoyed by the headline, Amy Dead, star, 27, dies alone at flat, after heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, and ketamine cocktail. Fellow singers turned in 140-character eulogies on Twitter. Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna Usher, Leanne Rimes, Big Boy, Rick Ross, Janelle Monet, Ricky Martin, and Adele all took to social media to grieve. Actor and fellow rehabber, Russell Brand, penned a lengthier tribute on his website. Quote, when you love someone who suffers from the disease of addiction, you await the phone call, Russell wrote. There will be a phone call. The sincere hope is that the call will be from the attic themselves, telling you they've had enough and that they're ready to stop, ready to try something new. You fear the other call, the sad nocturnal chime from a friend or a relative telling you it's too late. She's gone. Even fucking Bono paid tribute to her because of course he did. And if Amy Winehouse weren't stuck in a moment she couldn't get out of, you know, like being dead, well, you can bet she'd be heckling him for dedicating an acoustic performance of u 2 Stuck in a Moment You Can't Get Out of to her at a concert in Minneapolis that very night. On the Monday following Amy's death, an official inquest was opened to determine exactly what happened. The London police scanned more than a dozen hours of CCTV footage from outside Amy's residence to determine whether or not she had left her house on that Saturday evening. They grilled Tony as a party, and they collected evidence from the scene. Not just two empty bottles of vodka, as first thought, but three, two large and one small. The toxicology report found no illegal drugs in her system, but it did find that she had 416 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood. That's five times the legal drunk driving limit in Britain. According to the pathologist in charge of the postmortem, 350 milligrams per 100 milliliters of blood was considered fatal. And though Amy's vital organs looked fine, the huge amount of alcohol in her small body was enough to stop her breathing and send her straight into a coma, especially considering the fact that she had been trying to quit drinking cold turkey in the weeks before. Her body's tolerance for alcohol would have been greatly reduced. And that night, she simply overwhelmed herself. Amy Winehouse had clawed her way out of addiction to hard drugs, only to quite literally drink herself to death while trying to escape the clutches of alcohol dependency. The findings of the inquest were put into a report, death by misadventure. It appeared to be open and shut, a tidy end to a messy life. But in the end, it wasn't so tidy. In fact, it wasn't even the end. Two strange things happened shortly after the coroner and the inquest came to its conclusion. First, the inquest's official report was supposed to have been sent to Amy's family. And true, it was sent in the mail, but her family never received it, because it was sent to the wrong address. How had that happened, and who received it? And how did that compromise the investigation? And there were so many questions, a lot of them unanswered by the London police, but not as many questions as would be asked just a few months later. The second strange thing happened in February of 2012, and it was a bombshell. It was reported that Assistant Deputy Coroner Suzanne Greenaway, the coroner who had overseen the initial inquest, had abruptly resigned back in November, just one month after Amy's death at 27 had been ruled a death by misadventure. The resignation had been kept under wraps for months before finally being leaked to the press. Why had Assistant Deputy Coroner Suzanne Greenaway resigned? It was discovered that she had not been a registered lawyer in the UK for at least five years, the requisite amount of time to hold such a position. To complicate matters, Greenaway had originally been appointed by her husband, who happened to be a London coroner himself. Greenaway did have tenure as a registered lawyer in her native Australia, which her husband assumed was adequate. He chalked it up to an honest mistake. Others chalked it up, as he had another odd twist in what was supposed to be a quote-unquote open-and-shut case. Honest mistake or not, the fact that Greenaway was technically not qualified to do the job of a UK coroner cast suspicion over the entire inquest. Something definitely did not feel right. The press sharpened their knives, conspiracy theorists honed their narratives, and in December of 2012, the inquest into the death of Amy Winehouse was reopened to see what else had been missed the first time around. Jimmy Brown never forgot where he came from. Just a kid from council estates, that's public housing in London, who managed to infiltrate the upper class. First by winning a scholarship to a fancy boarding school and then by becoming a national fencing champion. He had that fight in him, a fight he took all the way to the English army as a young adult. A little too much fight, apparently, seeing as he was booted from the army after getting into an actual fight in Germany. Shit, man, if he couldn't get into a fight in Germany while serving in the army, then what was the world even coming to? What was the point of being in the army? But after the army, Jimmy needed money. He didn't have any. He didn't like not having any money. It reminded him of growing up poor. So he thought about how he could get some money fast. So he knocked over a security van, and then he knocked over a bank, and then another van, and then some more banks. Jimmy didn't want to hurt anybody, so he used costumes, props, instead of weapons. He just wanted to get that fast money and he wanted to feel a rush when he got his hands on it. And this went on for a few years until the robbery he staged in Bellsize Park, an elite neighborhood in Camden. This time, it wasn't another prop he was carrying under his clothes, a tennis racket or some shit. This time, it was a sawed off shotgun. He didn't want to kill the security guard. He didn't even want to shoot him, but uh, there it was, smoke pouring out from the barrel of the shotgun a security guard writhing on the ground, and Jimmy couldn't even remember the details of what went down. The court helped him remember. The judge said it was manslaughter, sentenced Jimmy to 18 years. How he got out after only serving 12 was anyone's guess, especially since he helped plot that daring prison break, the one where an inmate, not Jimmy, but this other guy, escaped on a fucking helicopter. And that took some balls, a guy with real fight, you know? And Jimmy was thrown in solitary for that. Despite that, they still let him out after only 12 years. But that was a long time ago, an entire lifetime ago. Ditto to the time Jimmy spent working for Amy Winehouse as one of her quote unquote minders, as the press liked to refer to the men who served in that particular role. And that was good money too, sometimes up to a grand a day, but with less risk than robbing banks. And the Americans just cut the bullshit and called guys like him a bodyguard. Though, Jimmy did more than just use muscle to protect Amy from crazy people. Like those filthy paparazzi, he could play bodyguard if that's what the day called for. But his role wasn't that one-dimensional. He had to be Amy's eyes and her ears. He had to be her GPS, her radar, and her mouthpiece all at once. These days, in the summer of 2014, the role of Amy Winehouse's minder was just something else from Jimmy Brown's past. But Jimmy never forgot where he came from. And he never forgot the lessons of his past that informed his present and shaped his future. It had been more than a decade since Jimmy's arrest and three years since Amy's tragic death. And Jimmy didn't fence anymore. He wasn't an army man or a bank robber or a jailbreak mastermind. He was, however, a bit of a Renaissance man, which is why it didn't seem strange to start fresh under the moniker Jimmy the Poet. He was set to read some of his original poems in September at Proud Camden, a venue and art gallery that Amy herself had performed at just a few years before. And Jimmy the Poet had prepared a new piece called An Ode to Amy Winehouse, especially for the occasion. It was written with the benefit of hindsight and in the fading shadow of closure. Over a year prior, in January of 2013, Jimmy the Poet, Camden Town, and the entire world received long-awaited closure in the case of Amy Winehouse's death. It was a long time coming, but that long time between Amy's death and the conclusion of Inquest Number 2 was not without a steady stream of Amy Winehouse news. Amy's parents inherited her estate, worth an estimated $4.66 million. Her father published a memoir. Cherry Wine, an unheard collaboration between Amy and Nas, produced by longtime collaborator Salaam Remy, surfaced on the rapper's Life is Good LP. A posthumous Christmas cash-in release, Lioness, Hidden Treasures, rewarded fans with a so-so set of covers and a few lackluster originals. Amy's ex, Blake Fielder Civil, was placed into a medically induced coma after a drug and alcohol binge left him choking on his own vomit. Amy's wedding dress was stolen out of her Camden Square home And just one month before the conclusion of the second inquest, that very home was sold at auction for $3.2 million. And the most surprising thing about the second inquest was just how unsurprising its findings were. It was a carbon copy of the first report. Amy had voluntarily consumed alcohol. She was not suicidal. Evidenced by her unguarded confession to Dr. Christina Romate at her routine home visit, I don't want to die, Amy told Dr. Romate, just hours before she did die. And when the ink dried on the inquest's report, it told the same story about a blood alcohol reading that was five times Britain's legal drunk driving limit. And there was no conspiracy, and there was no cover-up, not even any drugs, no suicide, just the cold, hard, logical conclusion of years of hard addiction. Fans the world over continued to mourn the loss of Amy Winehouse, but at least their questions about how it happened have been answered once and for all. Urban bards like Jimmy the Poet immortalized her in verse, but the world would never forget her, not for a minute. In fact, the world kept talking about her. But by 2015, talk had turned from the details of her tragic death to the details of her long gestating third album. And we're talking about a real album here, not the half-assed Lioness compilation or the Amy Winehouse at the BBC collection, which strung together her live takes for British radio. The fabled third record, the follow-up to the now canon Back to Black. Did any recordings exist? Did Amy have another Back to Black in her back pocket? Could a posthumous album be in the cards? Something similar to Janis Joplin's masterpiece, Pearl, which was famously released after Janis died? The answer to the questions surrounding the third album turned out to be the most surprising of all and the most complicated because the recordings did exist, but no one would ever get to hear them. We'll be right back after this... Word, word,
0: word. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's
1: biggest paranormal podcast
0: is going on a road trip. I thought...
1: David Joseph, chairman and CEO of Universal Music UK, kept emotion out of it. It was just business. And in business, sometimes you had to make the unpopular decision. The decision that others couldn't see as good. Good for business, that is, because they were too emotionally wrapped up in it. Emotion. That was the mind killer, not fear. Emotion. Emotion blurred your vision. It compromised your ability to make decisions, the right decisions. And it controlled you unwittingly, like a drug. Emotion made things seem better or worse than they usually were. Emotion made you giddy with excitement one moment and blubbering with doubt the next. Fans couldn't take emotion out of it, they never could. That was part of fandom. David Joseph, on the other hand, he could. And if he couldn't, well, then he had no business being in the business. The fans wanted to hear Amy Winehouse's now legendary third album. The one she had been working on with her go-to producers, Salon Remy and Mark Bronson. And so far, they'd heard nothing. Not even a tease. The fans' desire to hear something, anything, from the vaults with Amy's voice on it was driven purely by an emotional need and the subsequent emotional response. But David Joseph could think clearly where others could not. He knew exactly where the demo tapes were for Amy's unreleased third album. He had the demo tapes. They were property of universal music, and he knew exactly what he was going to do with them. Fans were emotionally attached to a dearly departed Amy Winehouse in a way that bordered on evangelical. Even if half of the fans who obsessed over her in death were the same ones who tore her down in life. They had spent years pawing over tabloid reports until her fingers were stained with ink. They clicked on links at all hours until their eyes were bloodshot. They came to Amy Winehouse for the music, but they stayed for the perpetual drama. And that drama didn't end when Amy died. When word of her death broke on that July weekend in 2011, Twitter became ground zero for grief. Reportedly, 20 million people posted about the tragedy in the span of 24 hours. A tweet from George Michael's account read, It's a tragedy on two levels, the waste of such a young life and the pain of those who loved her but it's also a tragedy that we won't be hearing the exquisite music she would have given us. In the absence of exquisite new music, fans went after any music they could get their hands on. Stores couldn't keep Amy's CDs on the shelves. In the eight days following her death, Amy sold 110,000 albums in the United States alone. That's 8,000 more than she'd sold in the entire year and a half prior. Back to Black immediately rocketed to the top of the UK charts, where it knocked Adele's 21, the best-selling UK record by a female artist, down a peg. In the year following her death, Amy's albums continued to sell in numbers that far transcended the figures she sold when she was alive. From the summer of 2011 to the summer of 2012, 855,000 physical copies and 1.15 million digital downloads in the US, another 1.2 million albums and 500,000 singles were sold in the UK during that same time period. Back in Camden Square, the first few days without Amy Wynos in this world were felt intensely by the crowds that continued to gather. People multiplied. Shrines were beacons in the dead of night. Some makeshift memorials were thoughtful and multicolored. Others were drained of all color, like the empty bottles of vodka that sprung up next to roses and poems, knowingly jaded winks at the whole ordeal. A graffiti image of Amy with wings, rumored to be from the spray paint can of incognito UK street artist Banksy appeared on a Camden wall overnight. Just days later, on Tuesday, July 26, 2011, 200 friends and family members gathered at Edgwarebury Cemetery in North London for Amy's funeral. Though attendance was strong that day, one person was conspicuously absent. Blake Fielder Civil sat in a prison cell some 200 miles away in Leeds doing time for burglary with a fake firearm. He'd have to mourn Amy's passing some other time. During Mitch Winehouse's 20-minute eulogy, a black butterfly fluttered around him. It landed on Kelly Osborne in the crowd. Everyone took it as a sign. The truly mystical mourners knew about the significance of a black butterfly. It was extremely rare. It symbolized transformation. Death and rebirth, freedom of body, mind, and soul. And the paparazzi, they didn't care. Not about mysticism anyway. Not about signs. Not about butterflies. And certainly not about basic human decency and privacy. Following the service, Amy's ashes were buried near a black and pink headstone commemorating Amy and her grandmother. The paparazzi lay in wait. And they were up in the trees legs wrapped around limbs while their upper bodies angled for the best shot it didn't matter how much their joints burned as they contorted into strange positions no pain no gain they stood on cars perched just so for a bird's eye view glance at all the morning on display they captured grief in a flash they fed off the shock with each fall of the shutter they zoomed in on tears focused on faces scrunched up and ugly no qualms Amy Winehouse was dead, so what do they care about some landmark legal victory ordering them to stay away? All bets were off, and so were the kid gloves. Years later, in 2015, David Joseph, sequestered in the offices of Universal Music UK, didn't have paparazzi to worry about. Luckily, they didn't follow him around. He was just a suit, all business. No one knew him from a hole in the wall. But he did have the fans to contend with. The ones who asked, some politely and some less so, about Amy's third album. What happened to it? When would they hear something? And they didn't want to let her go. And they didn't want to give up hope that there was new music, exquisite music, on the horizon. David Joseph was ready to let go. It was a hard decision, but it was just business. No emotion. He admitted that Amy's demos for a third album did exist. Did being the operative word. They didn't exist anymore because they had all been destroyed. It was a moral thing, Joseph told Billboard magazine. Taking a stem or a vocal is not something that would ever happen on my watch. It now can't happen on anyone else's. Nothing new would ever be heard from Amy Winehouse again. The actress was intrigued, to say the least. The opportunity was too good to pass up. In fact, it seemed too good to be true, but there it was, posted online, a casting call for a quote-unquote, untitled Amy Winehouse biopic. The producers were looking for someone to be their Amy, It was a dream role. The actress loved Amy Winehouse, who didn't? She possessed a once-in-a-lifetime voice and vision to burn. She was defiant, brazen, funny as fuck, a true force of nature, and her story was to the attended. The casting director sat her down, and they just talked. She wasn't asked to read any lines. The crew did, however, note her exact height and weight, and they took photographs of her face from what seemed to be an excessive number of angles. She figured it was all part of the game for such a high-profile project, and they must really want their Amy to bear more than a striking resemblance to the real deal. The second audition was just as odd. Once again, the actress wasn't sent a script with lines to learn. Instead, she was sent links to YouTube videos of Amy Winehouse performing Rehab and Valerie in concert and asked to arrive at audition number two with Amy's onstage moves down pat, which she did. But as she left the audition room, after having stood there in front of a room full of men and mimicked Amy Winehouse's every subtlety to a tee while music played and a camera rolled, she felt something was off this was the strangest audition process she had ever taken part in didn't they want to hear the north london accent she'd been working on and who was being considered to play blake opposite her amy should they you know at least run a few lines together and she thought again about the role itself how she had originally thought it was too good to be true and you know what they say about things that seem to be too good to be true something smelled reeked. the actress opened her laptop and googled the names of the men who had been present at the auditions what she discovered shocked her. The man who claimed to be the casting director was actually an actor. But that wasn't the strangest revelation. The man who had been introduced to her as the project's director was, in actuality, the CEO of a company called Base Hologram. The actress was familiar with the name of that company because it was all over the news that Base Hologram was working on resurrecting Amy Winehouse via cutting-edge technology which would digitally project her image on stage next to a live backing band for a three-year world tour. The actress blew the whistle at audition number three. She knew what this was. It wasn't a movie. She wasn't being considered to play the part of Amy Winehouse. She had been lied to, deceived. Did they think she was stupid? This so-called movie production team? Had they just been using her all along? Surreptitiously creating an Amy Winehouse hologram from the actress's own body? The room clammed up. Nobody said anything. No admission of guilt, and no denial either. They thanked the actress for her time and said they would be in touch. They never called her again. In 2018, the concept of a hologram tour wasn't exactly new. Tupac made his bow from the great beyond a Coachella in 2012. But the artists who had their digital likeness schlepped from state to state and stage to stage like Roy Orbison, Buddy Holly, and Maria Callas, tended to be icons from older generations. Amy Winehouse hadn't even been gone for one decade, and to many fans, the supposed tribute felt more like an exploitation than a celebration. Amy's parents disagreed. The project had their unconditional support. But even though the proceeds of the tour were set to benefit the Amy Winehouse Foundation, a registered charity established to aid young people in need of substance abuse and mental health assistance, many accused Amy's family of exploitation. The backlash came fast and furious. Amy's ex-husband, Blake Fielder-Civil, seconded the fan's emotion. In the press, he accused Amy's family of cashing in on her legacy. On the Good Morning Britain television show, host Piers Morgan was quick to point out that Blake was himself already guilty of cashing in on Amy's legacy, having sold details of her life to the tabloids, the very people who had made her life a living hell in the first place shape years, Facing negative publicity and scandal, the Amy Winehouse Hologram tour was postponed, but not for long. Just a few years later, in the summer of 2021, Base Hologram announced that they were once again moving forward with the plan to digitally replicate the experience of seeing Amy Winehouse perform live, which of course was ridiculous. There was no replicating Amy Winehouse. Didn't matter if it was a good night on stage or a veritable shit show that they were using as their base. A hologram tour was created around the concept of taking something out of the past for the benefit of the present, sure, but the execution was a mere facsimile. Amy Winehouse, her voice, was something that came out of the past. It leapt out from the white noise static in between radio frequencies, and it possessed her. It was a vibe from decades before that was reanimated within a new vibe that was being built for tomorrow. It was magic, it was voodoo. No one would ever be able to control it. Not record executives, not record producers, not ex-husbands and certainly not hologram companies. Trying to control it was a losing game. And at the end of each show, the projector controlling the hologram would go dark and the image of Amy Winehouse would fade back to black. And that might have been the most realistic part of the whole damn show. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at DisgracelandPod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. rock a What's up for your ears? Hey everybody, it's Jake. Just popping in to say I hope you enjoyed Season 4 of 27 Club, all about Amy Winehouse. Now that you're all caught up on Amy's backstory and final days, I wanted to share a story about another queen of the pop realm, Taylor Swift. You can hear all about Taylor's disgraceful fans and interstate stalkers in the season nine premiere of Disgraceland, my other music and true crime podcast. You can hear that episode on January 18th, wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can hear it along with every other Disgraceland episode right now, exclusively, at Amazon.com/slash Disgraceland. Rockarola. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip.
2: WORK.
0: Zumo Play.